The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, we ask a few of our writers to read their piece from the magazine aloud. I'm Max Jeffrey. On today's episode, Svetlana Monets says that Zelensky needs to be honest about the progress of Ukraine's counteroffensive. It just isn't living up to the hype. Sean Thomas explains why he likes terrible towns. Show him a poor, benighted, sad, remote, homicidal town. That's his kind of place. And finally, Angus Colwell defends London's rickshaws. First up, Svetlana Monets. Happy New Year, the year of our victory, said Volodymyr Zelensky on 1st of January. After the liberation of the Kharkiv region and Kherson, Ukrainians entered the ninth year of the war with hope that they could win. Light will always prevail over darkness, Zelensky likes to say. But now the counteroffensive is nearly over, having made crushingly few gains. With Western support waning, Kiev needs to be honest about how the war is going and what it will take to turn the tide. After Zelensky, the most popular figure in Ukraine is Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of the military, and he has a very different message. Fighting has hit a stalemate, he wrote in The Economist. A beautiful breakthrough is not imminent, and Ukraine should prepare for a long trench war requiring huge resources to make small gains. Weapons do arrive, but too few and too late. The long-range missiles and tanks being received now would have been useful last year. When Ukraine innovates, as it did with its forming drones, Russia simply copies, but at scale. Without a game-changer, Zaluzhny wrote, without acquiring some new technological advantage, Ukraine won't be able to win. With this bombshell, he overturned Zelensky's policy of sharing only positive narratives. The Ukrainian president's optimism has always been partly tactical. If the West thinks Ukraine doesn't stand a chance, he thinks his allies may push him into peace negotiations. Ukrainians know from bitter experience, including the Minsk agreements, what peace with Russia means. It means Moscow has time to prepare for the next invasion. Zelensky rushed to debunk Zaluzhny's assessment. There is no stalemate, he said. His military is exploring new strategies for quicker progress. He also emphasized that Ukraine doesn't have any alternative other than to fight. What to do about those people living in occupation? What to do about those thousands of people killed by Putin and his army? Just forget about it? No accountability? No tribunal? But Zelensky here has become a victim of the hype over the counteroffensive. Too many people expected a breakthrough when winter ended and the fighting season began again. Using NATO textbooks, Ukrainian forces thought it would take four months to reach Crimea, fight in Crimea and return, as Zaluzhny wrote. Talks about a big push at first galvanized Ukraine's allies into donating more arms. But then the troops got mired in minefields in the east and in the south. After five months of bloody fighting, Ukraine advanced only 10 miles. So expectations have turned to delusion, dangerous for a president whose strategy is to keep the dream alive at all costs. Zelensky has depended on his charisma and his ability to turn a phrase. His much-quoted line, I need ammo, not a right, stood in the tradition of the finest world leaders and rallied the democratic world to Ukraine's defense. 
Optimism is one thing, but a Panglossian refusal to face hard facts is quite another and dangerous too. Zelensky needs to tell Ukrainians that there is a shortage of soldiers on the front line and that mass conscription is urgently needed. But how can he reconcile this with the official message that victory is just around the corner? A split is emerging between the soldiers on the front line who know how desperate things are and the civilians in the cities who believe that 700,000 people who have been drafted since last February are sufficient to win in some meaningful sense. I spent time on both sides of the divide earlier this year and saw this perception gap for myself. The soldiers I talked to in the Donetsk region told me their brigades were so understaffed that they were not allowed home. Some had been in the battlefield for 18 or even 20 months. Others had spent more time at war than at home since 2014. Last week, families protested in a dozen cities across the country, calling for a rotation in the troops and for demobilization after 18 months of service. One kid was holding a sign which read, It's my turn to hug father every day. But Ukraine cannot afford such a luxury. According to British intelligence's assessment, we are in the first World War-style standoff because most of Ukraine's mobilized troops are needed simply to maintain a front line that is now 700 miles long. There are few replacements for the fallen and wounded. The days of people queuing at recruitment offices are long gone. A growing sense that conscription is eventually going to take every man means about 200 Ukrainians are caught attempting to leave the country illegally each week. Approximately 16,500 have been stopped at the border since the start of martial law. But there are no estimates of how many have successfully stowed away on boats or trucks. The sight of military officers grabbing men on the street and dragging them into conscription centers only makes others more determined to escape. In the next few weeks, we will begin to see the build-up to another wave of conscription, now called recruitment. Those who sign up next can choose for themselves what role they would like to take in the army. It is hoped and expected that it will improve people's motivation. Sign up and choose now or risk being signed up later and given no choice. Not every role available means frontline fighting. There are jobs to be filled in communication and supplies. The front line will need reinforcements, but that means a frank conversation with the public about the true state of the war. The battalions are thinning, soldiers are tired while fighting is constant. This week, for example, Russia has been trying to encircle Ukrainian troops in Avdiivka, a city in the Donetsk region. Just keeping the Russian army where it is is a struggle that requires the nation's full efforts. After seeing so much territory liberated last year, Ukrainians expected similar progress this year and won't settle for less now. Last month, a poll by the Kyiv International Institute of Sociology showed that 80% believe that Ukraine should not give up any of its territories, including Crimea, even if it means prolonging the war. Billboards and TV advertisements beg men to enlist, but why should everyone do so if people believe the Russian forces are impotent? People who think victory is certain want to plan for the future and for their children. They don't risk their lives. So the Ukrainian authorities have two choices. They can keep going with the boosterings and persist in trying to convince everyone that the fighting is going according to plan. Or they can start an honest conversation about what's actually happening. It's not just the Ukrainian authorities who avoid unpopular topics, but also the Western allies who crave the sight of heroic Ukrainian fighters making stunning advances, rather than struggling for every trench. 
Kiev and Washington may discuss the war without embellishment in private, but not in public. And to explain to the world why this war is so hard to win and why Ukraine needs to continue to be given help anyway puts at risk the patience and sympathy upon which Ukraine's survival depends. There should be no shame in acknowledging the truth. Ukraine faces an enemy with superior weaponry, technology and manpower. The fact it has managed to dwarf the advance of 400,000 Russian troops is an astonishing feat in itself. But to defeat these troops, to actually repel them from Ukrainian soil, we need to be upfront about how likely that now is. The West needs to be honest with Ukraine too. As Markus Reisner, a colonel in the Austrian army, recently said, we in the West became victims of our own propaganda, we thought it would work, we have forgotten about the essence of war. Reisner emphasized that the time has come to draw a line under the summer counteroffensive and concentrate on bolstering Ukraine's preparation for another attempt in the spring. He sees only two options, the West must give Ukraine all the weapons it needs, without restrictions, or accept that victory is impossible. Then we need to tell the Ukrainians this and perhaps start negotiations, he added. Then we need to tell Ukrainians this and perhaps start negotiations, he added. In that case, we must admit that the Ukrainian state in its current form may cease to exist because Russia will destroy it. Reisner is quite right to rule out a third option of a peace deal that is in any sense stable or guarantees Ukraine's sovereignty. That was the deal that Kiev signed in the Budapest Memorandum, which later turned out to be an exercise in appeasing Russian insecurities at the expense of Ukraine. To push Ukraine into a peace deal with Russia that would mean it being partly taken over would guarantee more war to come. It would also demonstrate to the world that the post-war notion of borders being protected by treaties is no longer viable. Whoever has the biggest army can take what he will. And for Ukraine? Zelensky must talk frankly about the sacrifices that will be required to keep Russian forces at bay for another year. Ukrainians have shown their unity and resilience when they need to defend their homeland. The real question is the extent of the sacrifice everyone is willing to make, and what the most probable outcome will be if they choose not to pay that price anymore. That was Svetlana Monets, and now Sean Thomas. There are plenty of reasons to love Catania in Sicily. And some of them are positive. The town is impressively ancient, dating back to the 8th century BC. It boasts a handsome, lavishly voluted Baroque core. A few steps from that main piazza you can find the picturesque fish market, the Pescaria, which sequins the black tufa cobbles with silvery fish scales and has been selling inky squid for centuries. What else? The city has a striking location, with Mount Etna squatting on the horizon apparently benign, but occasionally sending out chaffs of smoke to remind you of its menace, like a volcanic version of the late Tony Benn puffing his pipe at the edge of British politics. In the cafes you can eat the breasts of St Agatha, that's a kind of cake, celebrating the breasts torn off of defiant Christian virgin around AD 300. I'm eating one of the breasts as I write this. Finally, the food is properly good, which supports my long-held belief that the best food in Italy is commonly found in the poorer, less touristy corners. And there's the rub. Catania is poor. It is grimy, dusty, sooty, scattered with litter, surrounded by dystopian suburbs, and graffiti is scrawled over graffiti every inch. And it is edgy, 
By some reckonings, it is the most dangerous city in Europe per capita, certainly in the top ten, thanks to pickpocketing and mugging at the low end of the scale and mafia grift and murder at the top. In short, Catania is a terrible town, and that is why I love it, because this is my guilty travel writer's secret. Show me a poor, benighted, sad, miserable, remote, homicidal, melancholy, weird, inaccessible, hostile, freezing, burning, druggy, or frankly appalling town, and I'll show you a destination that I can really get behind, even love, for one reason or another. In my years of wandering, I've encountered quite a few. I've had a properly good time in Blackpool. I've got excellently drunk in Tijuana. I've had sparkling oysters in Luderitz, Namibia, in a restaurant which was perfectly sited for viewing the location of Germany's first holocaust. Among the litany of brilliant weirdness and mesmeric despair, a few places nonetheless stand out. Calcutta is one. In just 24 hours there, I saw a fatal car crash, my first leper, a huge brawl in a street, families living in sewers, troops of children living under railway platforms, and a corpse being burned on a gat, even as a naked old man died three metres behind. It was shocking and sad, but yes, compelling. Another candidate is Colorado City, on the frontier between Utah and Arizona. It's where the fundamentalist Mormons live, the polygamous types with multiple wives in Stepford dresses. The enormous houses have no windows facing the streets. This is to hide the many wives on benefits from the feds, it is said. The atmosphere is brooding, insane and thunderous. And yet Colorado City also has one of the best cheese shops west of the Rockies. Then there's Platy in the Aspromonte Mountains of Calabria the toe cap of the Italian boot. My one and only visit was about a decade ago. I was touring the Aspromontes, seeking locations for a novel. I was doing my favourite thing of simply tootling about, seeing what I might find, and I saw a sign for Platy. Perhaps the fact the sign was riddled with gunshots should have given me the hint, turn back. Obviously, it had the opposite effect, as I eagerly pressed on. It is hard to, des to describe the atmosphere as a stranger enters Platy. What I sensed as my obviously rented car drove slowly through the streets wasn't so much hostility, more a kind of astonished contempt. At first I was minded to stop for a coffee, but the glares from every single person sitting on their impoverished concrete porches convinced me this was a bad idea. Also, the lack of any cafes. Platy seemed to consist entirely of angry people in half-built houses with abandoned fridges on the roof. Flooring the pedal, I pressed through. My car was actually chased out of town by kids throwing stones from a cemetery. As soon as I was clear of Platy, I pulled over in a wooded glade and did a quick wiki check. It turned out that I'd just inadvertently done a tour of one of Italy's most notorious towns. Platy is the nerve centre of the Calabrian organised crime network, the immensely powerful Ndrangheta, who make the Sicilian mafia look like wimps. And as for Platy's apparent poverty, that's a deliberate deception. It is possibly the richest town in all Italy, thanks to crime. Platy is also known, Wiki told me, as the cradle of kidnapping, 
with tunnels for hiding captives stretching under the woods where I'd just parked my car. Even as I read this, my car was surrounded by local vehicles, really encouraging me to leave. I left. But you know what? I'd go back tomorrow. Probably with a well-connected friend. Because I kind of loved it. Why do I love terrible tales? There are easy answers. They will probably have few tourists, so you can feel adventurous and pioneering, and hotels will be cheap. They often have the thrill of danger in various forms. They are truly exotic, especially for a jaded travel gourmet who's been everywhere. Also, I have found that terrible towns often do one or two particular things superbly, as if to make life somehow tolerable despite the horrors. I also believe terrible towns can sometimes tell you more about a region, a nation, a civilization than their prettier cousins. What they teach will likely be dark, but it needs to be confronted. So what does Catania tell me? In the centre of the city there is a little round piazza. At one side is maybe the filthiest opera house in the world. On the other side is a faded fascist building called the House of the Mutilated. In the middle is a struggling pizzeria with a waiter hoping desperately for more Chinese or American tourists to keep the show on the road just one more season. In short, it feels like an emblem of all Europe in one pistachio nutshell. And, even if I'm wrong, the breasts of St Agatha are delicious. That was Sean Thomas. And finally, Angus Colwell. London rickshaws, or pedicabs, are always described as a scourge. They're too bright and they're too loud, the charge sheet reads. They block up the road and rip people off. Last week, the government announced in the King's speech that Transport for London will be given powers to licence them. Drivers will have their fares regulated, their backgrounds checked, and their driving abilities probed. At the moment, it's a Wild West. If you buy a pedicab, congratulations, you're a pedicab driver. You can now take German families over Westminster Bridge and play Despacito as loud as a jet engine. I went out over the weekend to speak to some of London's pedicab drivers about their trade and whether they were worried it's going to die. Most of the drivers insisted that pedicabs are good fun and that their charges are fair. But there are reports suggesting that some drivers have charged up to £500 for a 10-minute trip. A lot of the drivers I spoke to seemed to be aware of that image problem and had fixed rates on the side of their cabs. £20 to Westminster Abbey, £25 to Big Ben, £45 to go down Oxford Street, and that's per person. People should negotiate a price before they get in the back, one driver told me, more than hinting that it's the fault of the customer if they get fleeced. Several of the drivers had other jobs. One worked at Tesco during the week, one another did waitering shifts at restaurants. One driver told me that pedicab driving was a bad job. It's raining, he said as he waited outside a theatre for a performance of Matilda to end. I don't want to be doing this. About twenty hungry rickshaws were swarming around nearby, one cab's jingle bells melting into another's Whitney Houston. I asked him if he thought his cab was too noisy. Yes, he said, though he turns it down at 9pm. He sighed. He looked like he had the weight of the world on his shoulders, as well as the 100 kilos attached to his saddle. Cycling around with a heavy pedicab, along with two or three passengers, must be immensely draining if you don't have a motor. I only asked to go from Leicester Square to Covent Garden on my ride, but I felt bad about how knackering it looked for the driver. 
He was out of breath when we stopped, and we'd only gone for five minutes. For fifteen pounds, I negotiated well. Are they even fun? It's complicated. The pink fur is comfortable, but the journey can be bumpy. The open air should be nice. I could have a fag in one of these, I thought. But not in sleety November. People who had friends and family looked like they were enjoying themselves. A group of three grinned a lot, though a bit too manically for people stuck in traffic outside of Slim Chickens. Should they be banned? Of course not. The tube is always shut, the bus is always delayed, e-bikes are temperamental, and taxis are too rare. Rickshaws shouldn't be banned, they should just be cheaper. That was Angus Colwell, and that's it for this episode of Spectator Out Loud. Thank you very much for listening, and do join us again next week.